1: 215 years ago this month, 104 English men and boys landed in North America and established a settlement they called Jamestown in Virginia, named after James I and Elizabeth I, respectively. Over the course of the 17th century, a third of a million men, women and children left England for America. But in Virginia, it all started from very small beginnings – And there was every chance that this venture, like all the previous English attempts at settlement in the so-called New World before it, would fail. And in fact, it almost did. To learn about the first few years of Jamestown, I'm joined by Dr. Misha Ewan, the Curator for Inclusive History at Historic Royal Palaces. Dr. Ewan completed her PhD at University College London and subsequently held a Hallsworth Research Fellowship at the University of Manchester, and visiting fellowships at Yale University, the Huntington Library, and the Forger Shakespeare Library. Her first book, The Virginia Venture, American Colonization and English Society, 1580-1660, will be published this coming September. Dr. Ewan, it is a real pleasure to welcome you on to Not Just the Tudors, And it's great fun that we can talk about this anniversary. I mean, 415 years might not be one of the big ones, but I think it's still worth mentioning. So we're thinking about the settlement of Jamestown, but it wasn't the first attempt, was it, that the English had made to settle in North America? Can you remind us what they had attempted to do before that?
2: Yes, so during the reign of Elizabeth I, settlers had attempted to establish a permanent settlement in Roanoke, which is in what is present day North Carolina. In 1587, a 100 men, women and children had established a settlement there, but that failed. And it's that group of settlers that came down in history known to us as the lost colonists of Roanoke. And there'd also been other more exploratory ventures into places like Newfoundland and other parts of the eastern coast of North America in the late 16th century, but none of these had resulted in any kind of permanent settlement. So in that sense, Jamestown in 1607 was completely unique, although at the time people probably couldn't have predicted that it would have been successful. And certainly if you look to reasons that settlements had failed in the 16th century. It doesn't always seem that they had learned many lessons from this going into the early years of James I. Yes, because we often
1: associate the Elizabethan period and then early Jacobean period with people like Raleigh and Drake. And I suppose because of the later empire, we use that hindsight to create some sort of sense of destiny or that England is somehow an empire-building nation at this point. And it really isn't yet that at all, is it?
2: No, it's very much a small and very insignificant player on the world stage. And this is one of the reasons that people like Raleigh are keen to get a foothold in America. It's because of the growing, expanding Spanish and Portuguese empire in places like Brazil and elsewhere. But really, the English in this period are much more successful at privateering. And it's actually men who have cut their teeth on privateering who then do get involved in colonial ventures elsewhere. But it doesn't appear at the turn of the century that they're going to have much success. And actually, people's eyes, attention had turned towards other projects like the East India Company, and that's charted in 1600. And instead, they're looking eastwards. And then it's this kind of renewed interest in Virginia in the early 17th century after the Treaty of London. So England has now made peace with Spain that brings to an end privateering on Spanish ships in the Atlantic world and opens up this new possibility once again of trying to establish permanent colonies in what they think of as the new world. So the charter is given
1: to the Virginia Company in April 1606. Tell us a bit about this company, because I understand it to be a joint stock company, one of the first of its kind, but
2: to be somewhat different in its incorporation to the East India Company. Is that right? Both the East India Company and the Virginia Company, both joint stock companies. And what's unique about this is that it means for the very first time, people who don't have any kind of background or expertise in trade, can invest in these companies. So they buy shares. In the Virginia Company, a share costs £12 and 10 shillings. And unlike the East India Company, which it costs something like £200 to join the East India Company to become a member and invest, the Virginia Company, in comparison, is very cheap. Obviously still expensive, but it does mean that it attracts a much wider membership, not just in the merchant community, but amongst landed gentry, amongst aristocrats, courtiers... And the way that it functions is that they have a council in London, which directs and oversees affairs, but then people that are on the ground doing the actual business of colonisation are often men with military backgrounds, again, men who have previously been involved in privateering. And over the years, then in 1609, it expands its membership. And again, you see a really diverse group of people investing in the Virginia Company, professionals, professionals people in lower paid professions, also women, invest in the Virginia Company. So it's a little bit different in some ways from the East India Company, which does maintain this kind of mercantile focus. I guess because the East India Company at this time isn't trying to establish colonies. That's something that is different and is unique about the Virginia Company. And arguably it's because it has this emphasis both on profit and trade, but also settlement and colonization that it does attract people from wider different backgrounds.
1: Why would an entrepreneur risk their cash on something with such a high
2: probability of failure? So it's a really good question. And I think in recent years historians, including myself and others, have looked a bit more carefully at the people that are investing and where else they're investing their money. And obviously it is a high-risk venture But then the potential yields are all massively high as well. I think probably some people were overly optimistic because they've seen how much wealth was accrued through things like privateering. But of course, colonisation, it's not the same kind of business. But people are also spreading their investments around. So people that are investing in the Virginia Company are not only investing in the Virginia Company, often they're investing in other trading companies like the East India Company, but also the Spanish Company, the Irish Company. People that are wealthy, they do have money to spare, but they're also being quite careful to spread their investments. And something else we also see people doing is that, They're buying shares sometimes alongside others in these almost groups of investors together. So again, they're making sure that the risk is spread that way. So that all of the loss, you're not bearing the brunt of that. But of course, many people, yeah, in the first few years, certainly, they do not receive any kind of benefit from that investment. Many people default on their investments and then they're dragged into court by the Virginia company who say, you still owe us for the shares that you bought. And yeah, lots of people are leaving the company because they're not seeing any benefits from it whatsoever.
1: And let's talk about the sort of people, I guess mostly men, who went to Jamestown at the first, because this isn't the kind of religiously intolerant, puritanical dream of a city on a hill that was driving the colonisation of New England, say, in subsequent decades. So who are these people? What is pushing them to go? What's pulling them? And just a bit like the investors, why did they risk such a hazardous crossing for an unknown future?
2: It changes over time, but certainly in the first few years, the men that are leading the project, again, are men with privateering experience, often men who are experienced at sea, including some people who have already led voyages to eastern coast of North America. But there are also men like John Smith, who obviously is very famous, who have military backgrounds and experience. But they're leading the venture. Underneath them are people who are indentured servants, tenant farmers of the company, essentially. So their passage has been funded by the company, but then they will work for the company for a certain number of years. And these are men sometimes with different kinds of skills. So they do bring over people like tailors, people like tobacco pipe makers. They're already anticipating that tobacco might become a big part of this project. They're also bringing over young men in the kind of teen years who will also work for the company So it's a bit of a mix of people, actually. At this point, all male. It's not until a couple of years later that they do start to bring women to the colony as well. And I guess for them, a huge pull is the prospect of land ownership. They've been told that in Virginia, there's an abundance of land, there'll be all this opportunity for you. And for a long time, historians have often said that it's a project that tends to attract the younger sons of gentry as well, who maybe if they'd stayed in England, their prospects would not look so bright. But if they go to Virginia, they can really make a name for themselves and potentially become incredibly rich as landowners as well. So there are lots of things that are pulling people towards Virginia. And actually, the Virginia Company itself is working really hard in terms of promoting colonisation and trying to attract people. So Sermons that are commissioned by the company are being preached in churches, they're making their way into print. They're also publishing pamphlets and also single sheet broadsheets as well that are meant to appeal to a really wide range of people in England at this time. And they are asking for people with skills varying from everything from kind of agriculture to tailoring and all these different practical skills, both men and women to come, to sign up, and to get over to Virginia. So there's a huge campaign, actually, of trying to recruit people to go over there in these first few years. The 19th of December,
1: 1606, we have the three ships, Godspeed, Discovery, and Susan Constant, I wonder who she was named after, leaving London, and they arrived at Chesapeake Bay near the end of April and then made their first adventures into the country in mid-May 1607. I'm really curious to know what our sources are, by whom do we have accounts of what they found and what they proceeded to do next? How did they try and settle?
2: A lot of what we know about the very early years does come back to us through some of these published accounts, which I guess we have to read them with a little bit of scepticism because often they're really trying to promote how successful their attempts at colonisation are going. So it is some of the key settlers themselves who are sending back letters and then these are being written up by people within the Virginia Company. Unfortunately, actually for this period, before 1619 in fact, we don't have any of the Virginia Company's own minutes that have survived. So there is a huge gap in some sense, in the very day to day goings on of how this is all being organised. But people like John Smith, his accounts that he writes some two decades later, actually in the 1620s, he's really detailed about those first few days and weeks. A lot of this written evidence is obviously coming from only a certain kind of colonist the men who are literate, who are more elite. We don't really have any accounts from some of the servants or those who are a bit lower down the kind of company hierarchy. And what we don't have are any written accounts from the people that they encounter there. But what we do have actually, and what has been incredibly useful for historians, is an enormous archaeological record. And that tells us actually a lot about these first few years in terms of the sorts of things that the colonists take with them, the way that they are building and fortifying. So actually, with these written accounts, which obviously are quite biased, but alongside the archaeological records, you can start to build up a picture which feels a bit more balanced, actually, about what those first few years were like. So one of the first things that they try to do is build James Fort and They're anticipating that they need protection both by any potential foreign invaders but also the local indigenous population. The next thing they should be doing but they don't really get round to very much is planting food and this has consequences for them later on. But they're also exploring, they take boats, they go up the rivers and creeks, they're trying to engage with the local Powhatan population, the Virginia Indian population to try and establish trading relationships and really just suss out where they are, what this place is what their prospects are going to look like in terms of establishing trade because really that is the main thrust of what they want to do whilst they're there some of the accounts from this period say that all they did all day was search for gold and this kind of resulted in catastrophic failure but I think that's probably not the whole picture and actually they're learning as well they're learning about the environment about local foodstuffs they're learning about the plants and this is all influencing what they try to do in terms of things like tobacco cultivation and establishing those relationships with the local population for trade. Let's talk about those relationships I suppose
1: one thing we do have is lots of descriptions by the English of what they made of the Indigenous people, and you've said we have very few records that tell the reverse story. What was the kind of immediate relations, and what was the tone of it in the first year or two of settlement?
2: I think it was always very mixed. So on the one hand, in that first year, they are attacked, they're sieged at the fort by the local Powhatan group, only something like 38 men actually survive in the fort at the end of 1607. War and conflict is there from the very beginning. At the same time, some individuals like John Smith are really pushing to try and establish more friendly, peaceable relationships with the leader of the Powhatan and he's attempting to broker trade deals and Again, we can see this in the archaeological record things that they bring with them like glass beads from Venice that they purposely bring in blue color because they've heard that these will be more appealing to the local people. We also know again from the archaeological record that local Algonquian women are actually coming into the fort because of other kinds of finds like cooking vessels, mussel shell beads that would only have been manufactured and carved by local women. So it's a really mixed picture because again sometimes the evidence from the archaeological record can conflict with the written accounts but I think saying that it's mixed and it's constantly changing is probably the most kind of accurate way to paint it. It's not really until around 1614, so many years later, that a formal peace is brokered and established. But before that period, it's very much a fluctuating relationship. And I think it's one that changes based on the individuals involved. So John Smith is someone who actually is really trying to push for a more peaceable relationship with the local population. And some of this is obviously overblown by his own accounts of his time spent with Chief Powhatan and Pocahontas, of course. But I think there is a sense within the fort, you have this group of men that are sometimes at odds with each other and they don't always agree in terms of approaches. So when English settlers make incursions into local villages and execute people, obviously that's going to have repercussions for the relationship between all of the settlers and the indigenous population, but it's something that is constantly in flux.
0: Did you know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect. Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen. Premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more, and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's catch up on that story of John Smith and Pocahontas, because it's so famous. It's even been made into a Disney film. And the story goes that he's saved from death by Pocahontas as the daughter of the chief Power Hatton. What really happened?
2: Even now, scholars don't agree on what really happened. He thinks that he's about to be executed and he's been saved from death, Other scholars think that maybe it was actually some kind of ritual that was being performed and he just didn't understand what was happening and what it meant. And again, he does have a tendency to fabricate some things in his own accounts, So he's not an entirely trustworthy source. But we do know that he spent a lot of time with the local Powhatan population, as did other settlers, learning their customs, their ways, their language. But that story itself, like you say, it's become legendary. But I think he didn't understand himself necessarily clearly at the time what was happening and I think it suited him at a later point when he's talking about Pocahontas to have painted her in this light as well because she's someone that becomes an important part of the Virginia Company's own promotional machine so the fact that she's depicted as being this friend of the English settlers someone that has tried to help them in many ways is something that suited the colonists and the company to present to a wider public. So what went wrong in that first year? The men were certainly underprepared for the situation that they found themselves in. They did think that they would be able to rely on the local population to supply them with food. So they didn't spend enough time planting and producing their own food. What they couldn't have known as well is that their Were environmental factors that played into this? So they arrive in 1607 in the middle of a seven year drought. So it meant that the local population were much less willing to share or trade corn with them. So this is all being factored in as well. But of course, the fact that they don't have completely friendly, peaceable relationships with the local Virginia Indians does mean that they're limited in terms of being able to trade and supply themselves with the necessary provisions that they would need. But it's also things like where they establish the settlement. You know, the surrounding area is full of brackish water. It's very salty, it's not healthy. A lot of the men are succumbing to different kinds of disease as well, and just diseases that they don't have any tolerance against as well. So there's sickness in the fort, they're undernourished... They're having to fight off these constant assaults as well from the Powhatan. And yeah, like I said, by the end of 1607, there are only 38 of them alive. And then what happens next is that then they're being resupplied with fresh settlers that includes children and women. They're also coming underprepared, underprovisioned, sometimes because they have you know been caught in hurricanes during the Atlantic crossing. But you have this sense that there's increasing pressure on not only the colonists that are there already but then you bring in new colonists as well and essentially they just don't have enough food enough clean water and they're sick and when they're getting sick they don't have anyone to look after them as well because everyone else is sick and they're out looking for food all these different things are going on and actually some of the few letters that we do have from the first few years men complain that we really need more women actually because they could come and care for us when we're sick and they could do things like do the washing and there's this sense that it's an appealing offer (laughs) yes and so it's there's a few different factors and some of them you could say were outside of the colonists control the fact that there is a drought but I think generally we agree that they were underprepared because they didn't establish friendly relationships with the local population, that had a huge impact as well. Yeah. I
1: remember reading Malcolm Gaskell's book, Between Two Words, and there was a phrase in it that you've just reminded me of, talking about the letters, which was, if I remember correctly, Virginian letters might be messages from ghosts. This sense that as people wrote back because of the delay, that those at home started to get a sense that actually they're reading a letter to someone who may no longer be alive. What was that communication like? What did it mean for getting support? I mean, if they're sending people out at a time when the culinary is still very vulnerable, it suggests that messages aren't really getting through.
2: They are really. If we look at some of the correspondence between people in London at this time, you know, particularly men that are moving in the same circles, men who are investors and they know about what's going on in Virginia because they're attending company meetings, for example, and you can see that they're highly skeptical. They're saying that so far this colony is yielding no profit, there's faction amongst the men, and there's even stories about some of the colonists trying to abscond on ships and sail. Back to England because they hate it so much so there is that question of why did people continue to go and I think alongside the stories of disease and death and war I think the message coming through which is this was never going to be easy it's something that was always going to take a few years it wasn't going to be a quick win we are doing God's work and they will pull out those religious claims to bolster this when they need to And I think they just try to persuade people that just a little bit more time, a little bit more investment, just one more push will do it. And in those first few years, it is hard to imagine why people did continue to go, especially women and children. But by the middle years of the 1610s, the fortunes do seem to change, but that's a long way off yet. There does seem little hope really of this becoming a success.
1: Talk to me a little bit more about that idea that there's a religious motivation here as well, because it feels that their objectives are avaricious and mercantile. They don't feel pious. But you say that that was part of their thinking about this taking of land.
2: Yeah. So it's a long standing idea or impression that we have of early English colonisation in North America that Jamestown was all about profit and greed and New England was about piety and godliness and actually there's a mix of both in both places I would say. So if you look at the promotional material that is being written at the time about Virginia those are also in there and in fact the idea that we need to establish a foothold in North America before Catholic Spain takes over the whole continent is very much in the back of people's minds. And if you look at the men who are driving this project, including some of the very elite investors like Henry the Prince of Wales, these are staunch Protestants, military Protestants even, who really do not want to see any further influence by Catholic Spain in the region. So that is always there in the back of people's minds. And alongside that, Something that I find really interesting, particularly about the early promotional literature, is that they are also talking about this idea of of establishing a new Commonwealth, one that would be part of an expanded English Commonwealth, an expanded protestant godly commonwealth but that use of the term commonwealth I always just found very interesting because there is this idea that everyone will have a share in it as well and that the wealth and the benefits will be spread around not just the people that go but also those in England so I guess when we are looking at those first few years and thinking when I mean, everything did look so dire and grim why did people keep going it does make you think that maybe those messages that are being spread in print in church sermons are getting through and clearly are getting through to some people because they still choose to go it turned out however that everything up until 1609 had been
1: relatively mild by comparison to that winter
2: <laughs> what happened then yes by this point the numbers of settlers that had been brought over in the second and the third supply we call it had ballooned the population of the colony And they included groups of women and children as well. But this just further compounded the pressures that were on the settlers that were there already in terms of being under-provisioned, the rat war, disease. And the starving time, as we call it, was from the winter of 1609 through to the winter of 1610. And historians have estimated that by the end of this period, something like 75% of the settlers had succumbed to disease and starvation and there were only 60 people left within the fort itself. Now there were other people by this point who were scattered in smaller settlements outside of Jamestown But yeah, whittled down to just 60 within the James Fort itself was really quite extraordinary. And there were all these really gruesome tales, of course, that we know about people eating shoe leather, eating vermin, and then also resorting to cannibalism as well. At one time, historians thought these were just stories, things that people spoke about after the fact. But again, now we have this archaeological record that backs up those claims. How many people
1: had come out to Jamestown, to Virginia by this point, just so we have some sense of that
2: decimation or more than decimation to 60 people? So we think around 500 people. So the original 100 settlers, about another 70 that came with the second supply, and then at least around 300 people that came with the third supply in 1609. So several hundred and then after the starving time, whittled down to just 60 within the fort itself. And you raised earlier that one of the problems was that they hadn't planted
1: food. And it seems that there's a fundamental problem here, which is about status in the early 17th century, which is that if you want to have a hallmark of status, you need to be waited on by other people. That's what it means to be a gentleman. And I remember John Spark, who sailed with John Hawkins in the 1560s, talking of the French colonists in Florida and saying, they being soldiers desired to live by the sweat of other men's brows. And I wonder if a key problem in these early years is that those who were going to the New World were looking towards that prospect of this privileged status. And to gain it, you know, they'd die of hunger if they needed to. No one wanted to be the ones to actually plant the crops they so desperately needed because that was so lowly an activity.
2: Yeah, and it's something that people at the time comment on as well, that you're sending over men that have lots of military experience and sometimes you have these younger sons of gentry that have these kind of lofty ideas about what they'll be able to achieve in the new world but don't really have that practical hands-on experience of agriculture and husbandry. And it's almost that by the time they realise this and try to rectify it, it's a little bit too little too late. And particularly, I think, because by that time as well, they're facing all these other difficulties because relations with the local population have diminished to such an extent that they're under almost constant siege It really is very difficult for them to even get back to a sort of base point of of being able to think about those things again. But it is something that going into 1610, 11, 12, they do turn a corner. And by 1614, they are growing their own crops and they're returning to England with some of those samples to show people, look, we're becoming self-sufficient. We are growing crops like tobacco that are going to turn a profit, but it takes them some time to get there. And actually something that historians have often said was a key failure in those first few years was that you did have these military men trying to run the colony like it was a military fort base almost and not thinking about it in these broader terms. How do you establish essentially a small urban economy which is what they needed? And it is a point they get to eventually, but it takes many years, it takes a change in leadership and it takes a change in emphasis on the kinds of people that they should be bringing to Jamestown as well. So not just those that can fight, but those that can plant, those that can build, those that have experience of different trades and industries and to an extent that is reflected in that very first group that come and mention that they do bring over a tobacco pipe maker but again because of disease and death it's hard for them to sustain the skill and experience that they would need but also there's a sense that maybe they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves so do you need a tobacco pipe maker if you haven't even grasped how to plant corn yet maybe not and that's where they're probably going wrong.
1: So a note from history, Elon Musk, when you set up your plantation on Mars
2: or wherever, take some farmers with you.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) And it's quite interesting, when you go back to some of the accounts that we do have, the financial accounts, the early colony, some that have survived, actually, you can see that they do start sending over things like seeds and different kinds of tools that they're going to need. And they do try to make sure that after some of these kind of early failures that the settlers who are going are taking their own tools as well, so things like hoes for planting and all this sort of things. You can see threads of that in the historical record, but it just doesn't seem to be there at the very outset. And it takes them longer to undo that failure than it did for it to set in. You've mentioned that we have a really mixed picture of relations with the
1: native peoples and that soon they're really under attack a lot of the time. On the other hand, we do see the English, don't we, acting really no better than the black legend said the Spanish did. But on the other hand, we also have a marriage between an Englishman and a Native American. What should we make of this next phase of relations?
2: The marriage between Pocahontas and John Rolfe in 1614 is an event that brokers peace between the English settlers and the Powhatan group. Even that event in itself is quite fraught because the way that it's told from the English point of view is that this is this celebratory moment but The oral history accounts that have come down to us through Native American scholars and communities is that she was kidnapped, her conversion was forced, that she was already married and had a child herself before she married John Rolfe. I think even when we're looking at this particular event in Jamestown's history, again, it just reminds us of how sceptical we have to be of this kind of English account that is given of events. But in terms of the broader picture of the colony's history, it is certainly a turning point. And actually, it's not until after her death, several years later, so she dives in Kent in 1617. It's not until, you know, several years after she dies that again, another war between the English settlers and the Powhatans breaks out again. But certainly her influence on the prospects, if we want to call them that, of the colony are huge. So John Rolfe is the first English settler to successfully cultivate tobacco. And no doubt that was with her help, with the help of other Powhatan servants that they had in their household. And when Rolfe and Pocahontas return to England in 1616, they bring these samples of tobacco with them. And she's brought and presented to court to the king and queen as this shining example of what we could achieve in terms of the conversion of Native Americans. And she's presented as this person that is this yeah, hopeful example of the way that the colony, the direction that it's going in. Did any of those initial settlers become rich? Did any of them achieve what they had hoped they would So some of the very early settlers that came in the 1610s, I wouldn't say astronomical wealth, but several decades later, they have their landowners themselves, they have servants who are working for them, cultivating tobacco. So I guess for those that survived those first few decades, for some of them, for a small number at least, there was success at the end of it, but it's rare to see that.
1: Well, it's been a real delight to talk to you about something actually in itself not delightful at all, this very difficult, courageous, bloodthirsty, (laughs) traumatic time, but one that changed the fate of the whole world and maybe sometime in the future. When your book is out, we can talk a bit more about the society that was created in Virginia. That would be lovely. Yeah, it's been
2: lovely speaking to you today as well. Thank you.
1: And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com.